Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, September 14th. As promised on today's show, we're putting our final bow on our 2021 U.S. Open coverage by bringing on a returning champion here on our Crack Rackets podcast, host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3A Tennis Show, our friend Gil Gross joining us to recap the 2021 U.S. Open men's singles competition in particular. We break down what was a fascinating final, a straight set victory for Daniil Medvedev. He captures the first Grand Slam title of his career, prevents Novak Djokovic from winning the Calendar Slam, from winning his 21st Grand Slam title, which would have given him the all-time record, of course, on today's show. We break down that match, talk about the key moments, talk about the tactics that allowed Medvedev to get over the hump, talk about what was clearly a struggling both physically and and mentally Novak Djokovic throughout the course of the match. Of course, we then offer our other takeaways. Where do both Medvedev and Djokovic go from here? What were some of the other noticeable developments from the two weeks in New York? It is a fantastic conversation. I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy, of course. Before we get to it, just a quick reminder, you missed our women's recap. You can find it here on the Mini Break Podcast feed, Tennis Channel editorial producer, Dennis uh, David Kane, excuse me, joining me for that conversation. Of course, you miss any of our daily recaps. You can find them all here on the Mini Break Show. You can find all of our content on our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, we also had the chance to travel down to Tennessee for the Knoxville Showdown, get a little uh, kickoff for our college tennis content here during the 2021-2022 season. If you missed any of the matches, any of our coverage, you can find it on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel or on our Crack Interviews podcast feed. You can hear my recap of the event on our Great Shot podcast feed as well. Of course, last but not least, a huge shout out to all of you listeners, our Patreon family without whom none of this work would be possible. And also to our friends at Tennis Point, who, again, we are so grateful for their continued support. The least we can do ask you to support them as well. Best in the business. They provide the best equipment at the lowest prices. You go to tennis-point right now. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get stuff off your order. Again, a lot of cool features. You'll let them know we sent you there. So again, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15, but with that said, let's get to it. U.S. Open men's singles recap with the one and only Gil Gross. Joining us on the show today to help us put a final bow on the 2021 U.S. Open men's singles event is a man whose voice you may have heard on the U.S. Open radio coverage throughout the 2021 event. Of course, you may also know him as the host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 333A Tennis Show. Of course, I know him most importantly as my eyebrowed nemesis and friend, Gil Gross. Gil, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great, Grusky. How are you? I think I've watched the Matrix trailer like six times in the past 36 hours because because I have time. I'm like, oh, my God, there's not a 10 a.m. match followed by an 1130 on court 17, followed by a 12 on court 22, followed by all of these different things. And like, I mean, yes, there's plenty of tennis this week. I'm like, what haven't I done in a while? And I don't know. I I was a big Matrix guy. You know, that might be you may be a hair young. I'm also just I don't most movies yeah. I don't I have not watched so if you if you're wondering if I've watched a movie assume no and you can be surprised if I say yeah I've seen it 
I just assume you've seen what was the Andy Samberg and Jon Snow, Kit Harrington one, the faux Wimbledon doc- mockumentary that they did for HBO. You've probably seen like that and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can say that we've reached that level. I won't. I'm not. It's okay. Have you watched the Osaka or Fish documentaries yet? So I, the fish documentary is on my list and I'm about to hit it. I did, uh, I watched the start of the Osaka documentary. It, it I gotta be honest, it didn't keep me. Like it just, it, I just didn't find it. I'm, I'm a fan of Naomi. I just didn't find the documentary. No, no shade on her. I didn't find the documentary to be well done. No, that's interesting to hear because I have yet to watch them also that it's just on my off season list. I'm like, if I'm going to watch it, I want to focus and actually be able to absorb it. I'm I'm booking you right now. We're going to do a two-documentary review. We're going to talk about both of those things. Film critic Gil Gross is the critic of her. You know, that's the hat everyone's waiting for you to wear. Hey, sports docs are – that's a different story. I've seen many 30 for 30s. I can give you – I can give you the lowdown on most 30 for 30s. Yeah, so it's so funny because I, I'm curious how you experience this is such a this has nothing to do with tennis. I was gonna be like, what did you think of the Fab Five? Because I'm always curious to hear what a non-Michigan fan, because like, hey, Chris Webber went to my high school. So like that is a story I was intimately familiar with. And of course it was great to see the details, and that's what made that documentary so like so special. But yeah, I do feel I mean, because what they did the Jimmy Connors one, they did Venus, they did what other tennis ones have they done? There's one other tennis one I think I'm missing. Um, but I do, I do just feel like, like McEnroe, Borg, I know they've tried it. I've never loved the renditions they've done. I just think Borg's a little bit dull, like just respectfully. Like he just like he's a very cool man, but he's just like, eh, whatever. He just doesn't really care that much about it all. And so I don't know. I'm, I do feel like I, what's the best tennis documentary to you? It's probably – it's probably uh... – I'm uh, forgetting the name. Um, Strokes of Glory, right? Sure, sure. So Strokes of Genius. Sorry, yeah, Strokes genius, of Genius. Genius. Yeah, I, I would say I would say it's Blades that. of Glory. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that is a good sports doc. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, it's one of the all timers. But they slice <laughs> off the doll's head. They don't do that enough in comedies. But they just are. Anyways, but yeah, no. So yes, Strokes of Genius. Um, that's the Federer one, obviously, um, and. They did the Federer Nadal Wimbledon. That was solid. I thought the Murray Amazon one. That's number one for me because we actually got behind the scenes and we got the sort of access and we got to see the yeah. pain. That to me is the one that stands out. If they're gonna do, uh, you know, a Netflix type F one series, which we've talked about before, I would hope it would be in the Murray vein where we actually get that sort of behind the scenes footage. There's a Djokovic one coming out, by the way, and also just to just to correct the the record strokes of genius is the 2008 federer nadal wimbledon yeah 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 sorry did i didn't okay. mean to say they were separate yeah, yeah. i meant you to kind say of yeah, made yeah. it sound I, like it was a federer yeah, no, no, no i meant to say that is the federer that's the okay, strokes okay. of genius yes 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 i appreciate that though um i knew when it came out again it's been a lot of talking over these past <laughs> three weeks i think all of us looking forward to catching up on sleep but of course that was all a prelude to the reason I wanted to have you on the show today. As I mentioned, you were live in New York covering the event on U.S. Open Radio. Obviously, you guys have talked about it, uh, the final on three. You've done your own recap on Monday Match Analysis. But I'm going to ask you, you've had now two chances. This is the third version. They call me three-take Gruskin. I'm going to ask for three-take gross. Crystallize your takes here as we talk about the men's singles final, the men's singles action, of course, the storyline going into the final. The fact that Novak Djokovic was in pursuit of the Golden Slam, in pursuit of his, uh, the Calendar Slam, excuse me, in pursuit of his 21st major 
major singles title, which would have given him the open era record over Federer, over Nadal, and he was chasing history. The weight of that moment was not lost on the weekend, and that's where I want to start before we get to the actual match itself, because again, you were on the grounds, and I know I saw the number floating out there, 85% of the capacity of 2019. That may be true, but that final in particular... I mean, you go through, it was a who's who's. You had Pitt, you had Cooper, you had Gail King next to Savannah Guthrie, Derek Rose, Joachim Noah, you name it, they were there. Henrik that, Lundqvist. Henrik Lundqvist, the king of New York, of course, and yeah, that matters more to you. Um, but no, just in general, a who's who was there. It did feel like we had a royalty in attendance. That said, we had a rowdy environment. We had people booing Daniil Medvedev as he was serving for the match and just... Again, it felt a little unkosher, but we can get to that in a second. What was the vibe like in person? Was it as magnetic? Was it as just, again, electric as it felt on TV? Yeah, and it it was, and it started with the matches. And I've been going to the Open for, for a very long time um, with, a, with a little four-year gap when, obviously, with college getting in the way. But, uh, you know, normally... Arthur Ashe Stadium is not where you go for great matches. It's just not. It's where you go to watch the top seeds blow out the, you know, their opponents. Um, in I general. think like and Federer versus Istamin, like just like that's totally. the placement match. Yeah, totally. And it's funny you say that because I was at a Nadal Istamin match at Ash <laughs> back in the day, and I believe Istamin won a set, and that was like the most exciting <laughs> underdog thing I had ever seen at Arthur Ashe Stadium. <laughs> Uh, because like that's just how it yeah. that's just how it kind of was it wasn't really about like when you go to Ash you just weren't going to see a good match and this year that just wasn't true at all uh, there were so many good matches um, I mean you started off with Tsitsipas Murray and then um, the next day Djokovic Runo had its interesting stuff going on and then Anisimova and uh, Pliskova was an insane match and um, you had the Barty upset. You had the Osaka upset. You had Tiafo, who was electric when he had the Ash Night sessions. It was it was like a steady flow of incredible matches on Ash, and the crowds were were really appreciating that. I think we should ban Tiafo from the night. Well, we either have to ban it or we just have to accept it that that's the night session. Because if you see Francis Tiafo is scheduled for the last match on, you're up till one. Like you're up till <laughs> two. It's just like it screws everyone because again. He's always a guy who likes to get in those matches physically, and he does such a good job of embracing those crowds, and you could feel the energy, even in Andrescu Sakari, which is like, you know, I don't think there's one, I mean, I suppose BB Andrescu has built up some equity with the New York crowd, but the way they were embracing Sakari as well, it was just, it, it was magnetic, and then... You know, it's not just on Ash. You can go out to... I could point to that Brooksby-Fritz match, which was on what, like 17 or one of the outer courts out there. Grandstand. Yeah, Grandstand. Excuse me. That was fantastic quality, and the energy was amazing. I just... You know, you can go on and on and on. You're right. The quality of matches, and obviously, what was the final count? 34, I think, five-set matches, was it? I think second most uh, for any slam in the open era. The quality of play was incredible, and I do think the reason I bring up this atmosphere, have we ever seen a pro Djokovic crowd? Like, I know it's been talked about before, but particularly in New York, it just felt like they were doing everything in their power to try and drag him to that finish line, and yet, and this is where we can get into the match here, because I do want to start with the men's singles final, was Djokovic just washed? 
Like, again, physically, physically. It just, watching the match, it, it just felt like there was never a point where he was willing to suffer the way that you see Novak Djokovic suffer in these Grand Slam finals, but subsequently make his opponents suffer that much worse and ultimately grinds them down. I can think of two points. Maybe the start of the second set where he had his breakpoint chances and, you know, ultimately he had the breakpoint to go up 3-1 and, and the Love 40, uh, I think it was 2-1 Love 40, and, you know, Medvedev comes up with this ridiculous backhand drop volley and just an unbelievable backhand backhand down the line at 30 40 plus as we saw so frequently the ace down the t to me there's that stretch and then honestly the break he got at 5-2 had more to do with Medvedev than it did with Djokovic to me that was it that was that was the one stretch for Djokovic and so I do ask was it a physical thing what did you see it was a physical thing absolutely he he didn't have his legs um you know all of this with the caveat that Medvedev played amazing and deserves a u.s open title and he was right there and uh it was inevitable that he was going to win this thing and you know again well deserved uh but yeah djokovic didn't have legs um and that combined with the nerves was really what didn't give him a chance in this match because he he couldn't find his baseline aggression his arm wasn't loose enough his timing wasn't good enough he was not finishing well and what we see Novak do when that's the case, and that's the case all the time, in the Wimbledon final against Berrettini, Novak was tight. But he still had his legs. He had his movement, and he could keep the ball on the court and keep it deep and stay consistent and grind it out. Um, he couldn't – that wasn't an option in this match. And therefore, the nerves looked that much worse because he just couldn't fall back on his legs, which is always his safety net. I mean, that is why – in this kind of 3.0 era of the big three, that is why Djokovic is the best under pressure because it's more difficult to execute offense when when the nerves are really at the highest uh, level. And that is why I think Nadal has become a little bit more unclutch as the career has gone on and he's had to change his play style. And that is why Federer, based on the stats, this isn't really an opinion, based on how many matches he's lost from uh, up match point and up two sets to love, et cetera, that is why Federer has the most difficult time being clutch is I think his offensive game style. And Paul Anacone, Federer's coach, actually had a quote that agreed with that in um, in uh, Christopher Clary's new book about Roger. So I know that's kind of very, you know, big three, big picture, but <laughs> this is what Novak could not do in this match is fall back on the legs that are always so reliable. Yeah, and the reason I bring it up first before, and you know, I, I want to talk about glass half full, what Daniil Medvedev did well, and if you watch the course of the match, he was broken once. The entire duration, two hours on court with Novak Djokovic, he was broken once. He was 42 of 52 on first serve points, hit 16 aces over the course of the match, nine double faults indicative of the fact that he was going after his second serve. He saw the data point from the semifinal with Zvira, the data points from his previous matches against Djokovic. You date back, and I, I think it was, you know, Pat McEnroe brought this up on the broadcast accurately, that Cincinnati final they played. 2019 when he was down a set and a break and he just started slapping second serves and it ended up changing the momentum of the match and you know you look for Daniil Medvedev now here uh, over the last 52 weeks he's fifth on the ATP tour in hold percentage he's holding serve 87.6% of the time the only thing more miraculous than that he's breaking serve 30% of the time that's fifth as well he's the only guy not even Djokovic Medvedev's the only guy top five in both hold and break percentage 
And that manifested itself in this match. It just felt like, A, he was finding that T-serve so, so freaking well and just having the plus one opportunities, you know. And then, B, he was willing to suffer, particularly very first return game of the match, down 40-15, just extends a couple of rallies, gets a couple of unforced errors from Djokovic, who was clearly pressing. And that's what it comes back to. I know Medvedev looked excellent, and he was excellent on serve. But it just felt like Djokovic was pressing in his service games, whether it was the serve and volleys, whether it was just the forced approach shots. And then he just wasn't digging in physically in the way he usually does in his return games. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You're right. There was a a desperation to end points uh, rather quickly for Djokovic, which, by the way, I think that was a successful part of the game plan in Australia uh, because I don't think he wanted to turn it into – before the Australian Open final, matches between Djokovic and Medvedev would just become physical, mm-hmm. freaking clashes of fifty-shot rallies. And I don't think nineteen Australian Open fourth round. Go watch the match. Yeah. It was the best match of the tournament because they literally played a three-hour track meet. Yeah, exactly. So I think Novak did not want that in Australia because he feels like okay, that makes it like a toss-up, and who's going to die first? And I don't want that. I want my tennis to to be the difference. So that was successfully part of the game plan. But in this case, uh, it wasn't, he didn't have the execution on the aggression that, that he needed to. And in terms of Medvedev's second serve, he won 32% of second serve points in that Australian open final 32. And he flipped that number to, I believe, I believe it was 58 Mm -hmm. in this match. Um, So that is just, that makes all the difference. Average second serve speed was about, uh, six miles per hour faster in this match. And I thought that he did it very tastefully. He wasn't just bombing first serves on both serves and racking up double faults. He was picking his spots. He was being unpredictable. He was hitting instead of 130. There were a lot of second serves that were like 117 slice serves. I really liked how he did it. Um, and it was really strong by Medvedev um, in that area. Um, but you're absolutely right about um Medvedev being more willing to suffer than than Novak, the effect that had, and how well Medvedev, Medvedev served. Well, and Medvedev was lights out in set number one. Case in point, 20 of 23 on service points. He lost three points on serve against Novak freaking Djokovic in set number one of the match. The ball, the ball wasn't coming back, though. Yeah, at all. I, I mean, that's how well he served. And, you know, part of that, by the way, mm-hmm. I don't think Novak with fresh legs mm-hmm. watches that many serves go by. Mm-hmm. I just don't. See, I don't even have to lead you there. You go there. This is why you are always <laughs> have an open invite here on this show. That's what it was because Daniil Medvedev was lights out. And again, you look at the statistics for Daniil Medvedev over the last 52 weeks and just here in this 2021 season, obviously it's a season for first of first for him. I just mentioned it. After this U.S. Open, he's the only guy top five in both and break percentage. He made fourth rounder further at every Grand Slam. He's now made finals, uh, I think, or semifinals, or won the title at the last four hardcourt majors. He's second in ELO rating, second in overall ELO rating, second in the ATP rankings. You look at his numbers compared to his career highs. Career high for him in hold percentage, career high for him in break percentage, career high for him in first serve points won. This is a guy 26 years old, uh, 25 years old, excuse me, turning 26 at the beginning of next year, who's entering clearly the uh, the prime of his career. But I got dunked on hard this weekend, justifiably. 
I mean, he won the first three Grand Slams, was 27-1 in slams this year. I got dunked on by old takes exposed. Yes, I'm salty about it uh, for the fact that I said, look, for Novak Djokovic, the thing is, yes, his his best still is better than everyone else's. But if he declines even 5% physically, I do think his game is so predicated on physicality that these young guys who are now all entering their primes may be able to get him on that. Because we saw with Zverev in the semifinals. He got shaky on serve at the start of the fifth set, but physically he was right there with Novak from start to finish. You know, Berrettini, four sets, the match before. Even Brooksby was pushing him a little bit physically. And I just, you know, by the end, the tank was on empty when it was time for the test of tests in Medvedev. And now this was the fourth slam of the year. And so it's, you know, the U.S. Open is not Australia when it's a fresh Novak. And of course that's worth noting. But the reason, and I'm not going to retweet the tweet and try and say, well, who's dunking on who now, now that he lost? Because I still take the L here. Let's be clear. Three majors in the past four. He's at 20. He's probably going to end up above 20. But I do think this was a little bit that, like, that is the point for me is I do think this was, as much as it was the nerves, and of course that played a role, I just think it was really hard with those nerves, with this being this point of the season, to find that gear he found in Roland Garros in the semis against Rafa and the finals against Stefanos because it just wasn't there. It would have been impossible for him to play that well with with the kind of nerves he was feeling, and that was clear from start to finish. The thing is, he kept working through it again because Novak is the best at dealing with the nerves and managing to win tennis matches because he falls back on the legs. It's just exactly what happened here as you – as you rattled off all the matches that went to four and that, you know, all the matches that were very physical and emotionally even tiresome, there were, there were too many. They added up. I mean, the only regret that you might have if you're a Novak fan or a Novak is you, is you think, Oh, I wish that Felix was the semifinal (laughs) that I got to play and Zverev and Medvedev played each other. And then maybe that could have changed everything. But look, draws draws or draws yeah it, it, it's totally fair now again when you look through the course of the match I mentioned it Daniel Medvedev loses three points on serve in that first set he breaks Novak after going down 40-15 at the very start of the set uh, to win that first set 13 winners against seven unforced errors he was just excellent from start to finish and as you mentioned the ball really just wasn't coming back that frequently from Novak in that first set in his return games now set number two was interesting because again 2-1 Love 40 for Daniil Medvedev on serve. Yeah. He hits a he hits a first serve. The speaker, I think, goes off in the background. That's this point, right? That's the is that the love 40 or no. the 30 40 point? Is no, no. You're you're at the you're at the one, you're thinking of the one two game. Okay, that's the one two game, right? In the second yeah. set. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the one, love two. the love one game. I thought you were talking I thought you were gonna go to the love one game, which was a love forty. Oh, so that was the love 41, right? Because it yes. happens back to back. So you're yes. you're right. I'm screwing them up here. See, three show. I appreciate it. The <laughs> clarifications here. Um, but no, so love 40 in the love 40 game, which is the love one game. He goes big serve T uh, ends up hitting this inside out backhand volley. That was just silly at the end. Djokovic had a plan. No, I'm pretty sure that was the point where the let was called because he got so frustrated. He almost slammed his racket because he was so angry that the let was called previously. Right, the backhand volley you're thinking of was yeah. one was at one oh. two. Oh, I'm just so that is when it happened. Okay, good. Yeah, good, yeah, good. that so, is when good. it happened. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, see, we're good. Um, we're yeah. back, folks. But again, he saves one of the breakpoints with that. He saves one of the breakpoints with just 
this absurd falling backwards, backhand down the line. And this was in the span of the games, I want to point out, that Djokovic did lock in physically. That he said, you know what? I got to make my push now. Because if I don't, I might lose this match in straight sets, as was the inevitable outcome. But, you know, other than those two shots... It was just big first serves. Like, that's what it was. It was so simple for Daniil Medvedev, and you look for him again over the course of the match, 42 of 52 on first serve points, 22 of 38 on second serve points. He was going for broke on those second serves, and despite the nine double faults, I think he won that equation. I think we can say that tactic played to his favor. 38 winners against 31 unforced errors, was willing to suffer physically 89.9 feet per point to Djokovic's 85.7. I do think that gap is noticeable as well. But again, I mean, Medvedev, like we've talked about Djokovic perhaps not having the legs. Medvedev exploited that fact about as well as possible. Totally. And, and you know, so those break points saved were very impressive. I That was also, you know, the beginning of the second set is really the part of the match that you want to definitely highlight. Um, yeah. And yeah, those, those break points saved were very impressive. But I was impressed with his 5-4 game serving it out because at that point, Novak had actually shaken the nerves for the first time in the match. He was focused on other things. Um, I think he had accepted defeat at that point and he was appreciating the crowd and the result of that was his ground strokes were different in that game, which was weird to see. It was like, oh, you're not tight now. And literally the ball's coming off the racket completely differently. And Medvedev builds a 30-love lead on two just fantastically played baseline rallies. Um, and, you know, my my thought at this point was I really don't think – and look, this is, this is how the game works. We compare each – you know, we compare these guys – who are comparable to each other. Yeah. I feel like Zverev and Tsitsipas get broken at 5-4 there with the way Djokovic was playing. I just don't know that they hang on and play the lethal game that Medvedev did there. See, I'm going to push back on with one, you know, I'm going to push back on that. 5-2, and that's why I'm not quite ready to get to 5-4 because 5-2 is where we saw the break, where we saw the blink. And for Medvedev, that game was atrocious. I mean, Djokovic hits a fantastic forehand cross-court winner for Love 15. Then it goes, big serve Medvedev, 15-all. Double fault for 15-30. Another big serve, 30-all. And then I believe it was double fault. Or is that where he gets to 40-30? And then he goes, you know, double fault, 40-30. Double fault on deuce. Sloppy forehand on forced air to hand away the break for 5-3. Djokovic, that that was the one where it was just like, that was the brain fart game where it was either, hey, I'm slapping in a first serve to win this point, or I am just, I can't make this, you know, I am really nervous right now. Oh my God, I might win my first Grand Slam. I think that 5-4 game, and you sort of mentioned it, I mean, I guess we will get into it now. I don't know how you don't cry watching the ending of that match. I knew it was coming, and just to see the tears on Novak Djokovic's face, and this is something... Just to, you know, it's easy to view these players as robots and just to say, well, they're out there, they're professionals, they get paid, they don't really care, it's just another result, it's just another paycheck, they compartmentalize, they move on. That's not the case for Novak Djokovic. Has anyone looked more human in the moment than Novak Djokovic down 5-4 in the third, seeing his lead escape, seeing the crowd embrace him, trying to power him over the finish line, and just being brought to tears by 
the weight of everything he accomplished this season. It's everything that makes tennis such a beautiful sport is you do have these individuals leaving it all out on the court. And, you know, this is coming from someone who, yeah, still cried over club tennis results because I was like, damn, like, what are we doing here if we're not here to win? I like to win. I don't want to lose. <laughs> this is th- that to the nth most degree. This guy has won tied for the most majors in men's tennis history, and he's still out there seeing history escape. I like – I just think I don't know how you win after that. Like after that reaction, because as you mentioned, it just felt like five four. Djokovic was resigned. Yeah, but he played a good game. I think because <laughs> he was resigned. Uh, like like I thought he played well in that game, and just couldn't get the you know Medvedev was better. But um, it was it was very it was an incredible moment. Um, the, first of all, just that changeover, the changing of emotions. Because at first he heard the crowd. And just to backtrack for a second, I give Medvedev a pass on the 5-2 game. So I thought the crowd, the crowd did it. Like, the key. <laughs> they looked, chirped like, him. Yeah, yeah. And and he got pissed and double faulted. Like, th- that's what happened there. N- not to take anything away, but, like, the crowd got Novak a break there, yeah. uh, in my opinion. And, again, as you kind of mentioned, it's really not as much as I love the U.S. Open crowd, that was not acceptable behavior. Mm. Um, but I was glad what was acceptable was that Novak finally got the love um, from this crowd that, man, you can go back. This is not a recent thing. You can go back a while um, with Novak just trying to make nice with New York. And I I, I don't like it when people you know, act like Djokovic is unique because he wants the crowd to like him. I mean, what tennis player doesn't? Um, like, how did Stefano Tsitsipas like it when the yeah. U.S. Open crowd was not with him? No, nobody likes that. And, I mean, I, you can go back to Novak. I don't know what year it was, but, like, inviting John McEnroe down from the booth and hitting with him. He's done so many things to try to be like, hey, I like you guys. Please like me back. Mm-hmm. And this was the moment where the crowd was like, we are ready. We are ready to love you. Um, and it was, it was really poetic because there was no moment in Novak Djokovic's career that he deserved more love than that moment after the run that he had, that he had made at this grand slam. And in the final match, it wasn't going to happen, but it, it was, it was such an incredible run. Yeah, no, again, and you look for Daniil Medvedev, who, as you mentioned, gets over the finish line, holds at that 5-4 game, uh, does not face a break point in that game to get his first Grand Slam title. You look via ATP media info, some of the things he accomplishes, obviously. Here's the list of Grand Slam men's singles champion, uh, first-time champion since 2005. Rafa, Djokovic, Delpo, Murray, Stan, Chilich, Team, Daniil Medvedev, eight guys since 2005. That's a fun list to be on. You look for it. He's the ninth different U.S. Open men's champ in the last 14 years. Uh, you look, you know, beyond that's a lot, that, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that's right? the, by far the most of any of the slams. The other, there have only been four different men to win each in the last 14 years. And by the way, that speaks to fourth Grand Slam on the calendar. Things are always going to get a little bit funky. You look, he becomes the fifth, or excuse me, the third Russian man to win a Grand Slam. Kafilnikov won two, 96, 99. 
Safin II, 2000, 2005. Now you have Daniil Medvedev as well. You look broadly than that. Medvedev, Raducanu become first pair of first Grand Slam singles champs at the same event since Gaston Gaudio and Anastasia Miskina at the 2004 Roland Garros. Were you alive in 2004? I'm just kidding. You're you probably a solid diaper still? Nah, you're past nah. diapers at that age. Yeah, a little bit past that. Um, last pair of first-time Grand Slam champs at the U.S. Open was Sampras and Gabriela Septini. 1990, you look, of course, for Medvedev. He denies Novak the calendar Grand Slam. He becomes first man since Rafa in 2010, second since Lendl in 87, to drop only one set on way to the U.S. Open men's singles title. I mean, again, for Daniil Medvedev, this felt like a long time coming. Four Masters titles on hard courts. Year-end finals on hard court that he was a champion of. He'd made finals of the Australian Open, finals of the U.S. Open. It just was this final hump, getting over the finish line. And what was so impressive for him is that he was a front runner from start to finish. He was, you know, two or by the second week, number one on Tennis Abstract's forecast. And again, you look for Daniil Medvedev now since, I believe, the start of 2018, 147 wins on hard courts at the ATP level. That's the most of any player. Djokovic at 115, Zverev 113, Tsitsipas 111, Rublev 108. By the way, it's a pretty accurate group. That feels about right. Uh, most hard court titles, Medvedev 12, Djokovic 10, Zverev 7, Rublev Federer 6, Again, it, the, I think there was an acceptance to this result. And that's what's so surprising is even though Djokovic was 27-0 and coming into this Grand Slam final, I think people are ready to call Daniil Medvedev a Grand Slam champion, particularly at a hard-court event. Is that your feeling as well? Any final takeaways from, again, this two-week run from Medvedev? Totally. It, it was going to happen. You know, you don't— you don't win Canada, win Cincinnati, win Shanghai, win Paris indoors, win ATP finals, make the final of the U.S. Open, make the final of the Australian Open. Like, that was his hardcore resume. Obviously, he was going to win the U.S. Open or the Australian Open, and it was going to happen soon slash quickly. And I think the main thing that separates him from Zverev, especially, because I think him and Zverev have similar skill sets in many ways is just how unwaveringly confident Medvedev is in himself. Um, and just that belief doesn't really go anywhere. It, it's always there. Uh, and it just makes him to be a, a more consistent, a more consistent competitor, someone who's able to play at the top of their game at a higher consistency level than Zverev. Uh, there are some technical things with with Tsitsipas that Medvedev does not have to deal with. Uh, and then he's worked on on certain things. You know, he could not he could not hit his second serve this well in 2019. It would not have been in it would not have been a possibility for him. Another thing that I think has gotten much better for him is his passing shots. And he's learned despite his flat strokes how to dip his passing shots low. I think that's something he was worked he's worked on. Uh, I think he's worked on being less susceptible to the backhand slice because after 2019 everyone kind of had a really easy scouting report on Medvedev. It was slice the backhand a ton if you can, go to the net all the time, um and attack you know, the pl- forehand with pace. Yeah, or up the middle especially. Yeah. I mean, he's good at absorbing pace, but 
No, I'm at, uh, with the serve, and again, just, yeah, be aggr- if you're going to be aggressive, that's the side to be aggressive towards. It's like, yeah, sure. you're not attacking the backhand. For sure. Yeah. Um, and he's just, oh, and, and go to net, I think, was yeah, another. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then all of those things were, okay, this is how we're going to play to Neil. You saw his results get take a little bit of a dip for a while there. And, uh, I mean, he's really worked on his strengths nicely. He's refined his strengths very well. Uh, and it's it's a scary combination. I mean, you talk about hold percentage and break percentage. It's not a coincidence. Has there ever been anyone with a better serve-return combo than him? I mean, this is the epitome of the modern player. I would say, yes, it's him and Zverev. Like, what they do from a number standpoint, you're not supposed to be top five, top ten in both hold and break percentage and make it look as easy as both of those guys do. And that's the testament. When you're 6'6", you can move as fluidly as they do. You have the reach that they do on both the return and the serve. That's what makes this generation of next-gen talent so scary is it's just like you're not supposed to do these things. And he routinely does them. I agree with you. And you look for Daniil Medvedev now, 47-10 and 10 over this 2021 season. That's an 82% win percentage. He's won five titles, made six finals in 15 total events, has won a Grand Slam title, uh, obviously first of his career, made another Grand Slam final in Australia, fourth round or further at all of the majors. It's not a prime Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Murray type season, but it's like a it's in the Edberg range. It's in the courier range. Like it is in those right around there where they start to rip off winning over 80% of their matches, winning a slam, winning multiple masters titles. You look from six and three against the top 10, 11 and uh, six against the top 20. And I, I think this is a tough year to measure top 10 wins by because just given the fluidity of the bottom of the top 10, there's like, I think it's a better metric to say top 20 wins and he's 11 and six against top 20 opponents. I mean, He's he's 35 and 5 on hard courts. He is dominant on hard courts now. He has reached, you know, that 90% win threshold in hard court matches. Again, will the grass court, will the clay court tennis catch up? It it caught up a little bit this year, and if it does, now you start thinking, I had one of my... Uh, the best part of these Grand Slams is that now, and I imagine you get this as well, uh, we're just a magnet for tennis texts from anyone in our lives, uncles, cousins, brothers, friends, siblings, whatever, and my brother's roommates were texting me, and he goes, I think Medvedev, I give him seven. I give him in the McEnroe range, and I was like, you know what? It's not a horrible take. Like, I I do think this is a guy physically these next five years, or even you want to lock in three years, fine. Three years, that's six hard court, uh, slam hard courts. Or if I told you he wins three of the next hard court slams, three of the next six hard court slams, would that shock you? Like, I, I do think we've seen him sustain it now since 2019. Yeah, the, the knock on him right now is definitely his surface versatility in that respect. It's a big deal, and it really helps that two of the four are on his favorite surface. <laughs> exactly. And I wouldn't be surprised if at all if he figures out grass. I mean, there are fundamental reasons why he's found that surface difficult. And I actually – I think I think he's going to need to figure out how to return from a closer in position on grass in order to figure things out there. Uh, but – in a lot of respects, grass should suit his game great. Uh, low bounce is awesome for Medvedev. His ball just skids really low off the off the surface, uh, and obviously the speed is good for his serve. Is he the Kawhi Leonard of men's tennis, where it's just the efficiency, where you're just like this guy? Is, you know exactly what you're getting from him, match in, match out, 
rock solid on both ends, service returning, like just kind of breaks the numbers for what he can do. Like, I, Is that the comp? No, I don't like it because Medvedev – Kawhi's funny. Did you see the Too Sexy video with Drake and whatever? Come on, there's a little dancing. Well, uh, look, no comment on that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Medved- here's the uh, another knock on Medvedev. I just said his only knock is surface versatility. Another thing is, like, mentally he can be a total head case. Now, I mean, let's be honest. True. I mean, I, the clay court season was not a matter of Medvedev hits flat so he can't win a match. No. The, the clay thing was he was mentally not ready to win a match. This was not about Medvedev hits flat. So he can't get out of the first round of Monte Carlo. Like, come on. He can't beat Dan Evans on clay. Wait, that's who we lost to, right? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He can't beat Dan Evans on clay. Really? No, yeah. of course he can. He just was basically being a head case. I okay, mean, but Mike, Mike, pushback to that would be but then we saw the french open run where he won exactly how he was supposed to when he just said you know what i am gonna lock in physically and i'm just gonna play <laughs> my tennis on these clay courts and it's worth reminding everyone daniel medvedev has only really been daniel freaking medvedev probably since the start of 20 20- i mean you would really say okay midway through that 2019 hardcore stretch at the end of the year i thought he flashed that level at the start um and was starting to look very very good uh throughout the course of the season but he's only been daniel medvedev really for about like six months you know this is his first full season of being daniel freaking medvedev (laughs) because 2020 got cut off and there would have been a whole season of clay court repetitions for him to kind of go through the lumps that he went through this year and that's just i always want to mention the data point because and the amount of – there's two texts I've gotten most. You know, it's about Medvedev or Raducanu, and it's about generational shifts. I'm having people who, like, don't watch tennis. They're like, oh, things just seem to be different now. All these young players are winning, and it's like, man, you really haven't listened to the pod since 2017, have you? <laughs> it just – it does feel like for all of them, the, you know, male or female, the Andrescu's, Osaka's, Medvedev's, Tsitsipas's of the world, like what is the sample size of grass court matches? What is the sample size? I mean, clay's a little bit larger, but like surface versatility, if that is the one thing you're concerned about, I actually think that's a great thing because there have been limited reps for Medvedev. Like, yes, he turns 26 next year, but he really hasn't been Daniil Medvedev in clay court matches for more than six months. Yes, yes. It's an unquantifiable um, theory. You know I got to throw a few of them at you. No, no, and but it, it's a true theory. I, I think with especially with the grass, it's that people need to not look at past results. Like it, it was driving both of us crazy, I think, when people were like, Chichi Pass has never been past the first round at Wimbledon. It's like, dude, he's played it twice. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so yeah. I, I think that was out of hand um, at the same time. They a guy like Medvedev did play Wimbledon at juniors and actually had a lot of success there. So uh, there are some reps. I do think that there are some stylistic things. I mean, Felix, Felix, uh, his game's great on the grass. So so it's not. It, it also might be something where we're like not looking at anyone except Rublev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, and Medvedev, and that is also kind of to our detriment because there are actually other players like Berrettini and Felix who really do like the grass. Mm -hmm. Fair. What I would say is 
good looks good in limited sample size. If someone's good on grass courts, it's just going to look good. And Felix's game freaking works on grass courts. Like you, get, you could tell it the first year he played grass court events when he made a final, and this year he backed all of those results out. Or CT pass, excuse me, for FAA. For FAA, you just know it's going to work. For Felix, it, when it works, it works, and his works. For someone who doesn't work, you need the repetitions. You need to take your lumps. And so I think it's more valuable for Medvedev to take lumps on clay than it is for, you know, FA to continue to be good on grass courts. It's like we – I just think this was a good season for him. And then to have that final result at the French Open, I think that bodes well for his surface versatility. Nevertheless, this is not U.S. Open related. There's the tangent we were looking for. Uh, of course, again, in the final, 4-4-4, four, four, and four, Daniil Medvedev able to get over the finish line. You look at the final numbers for him. Again, 38 winners against 31 unforced errors, wins 81% of his first serve points, 16 aces against nine double faults, a 58% win percent percentage uh during the, his second serve points you look for Novak Djokovic wins 80% of his first serve points but makes only 54% of those first serves 27 winners against 38 unforced errors 40% win percentage on second serve points 31 of 47 at the net I guess this would be my final thing from the match and you sort of alluded to it and I'm, I wanted to I put a pin in the thought so I'm glad we're getting back to it man Daniil Medvedev's two-shot passing shots. I know Djokovic was 31 of 47 at the net, according to the statistics. My eyes tell me otherwise. Every time Daniil Medvedev needed to dip a service return at the feet or a first passing shot, it, it just felt like he found the low backhand volley of Novak Djokovic every time. And increasingly as the match went on, that was the case because Djokovic was actually 8 for 9 at the net in the first set. Um from there the efficiency fell off a cliff and actually the frequency went up so it was a weird thing where Djokovic was going to net more and more and it was working less and less and uh part of it was he wasn't getting in tight enough because he he wasn't closing the net but then the other part of that was Medvedev says oh you're only getting to the service line where well that's where my ball is going to bounce so it, it was it was completely a dynamic that worked in favor of Medvedev. And I just feel like it's something that he's worked on, but it's also, it makes no sense because he hits so flat that he shouldn't be able to dip the ball very low, very well, but his hand eye is so good. His, uh, it just makes no sense, but he can be like, well, my ball is going to dip low because it's only going to be about two inches above the net. And that's going to be my net clearance. It's going to be basically no net clearance and I'm not going to miss so look, Medvedev just—I don't know how he does it, but he just does these things somehow. No, it's first of all his two passing shot combos too, because he's always going to track down that first volley. And yep. if he gets a clean look at that second pass, you're just screwed because he's got so much court to work with. And it is worth noting again: this is the manifesting of the Djokovic dead legs. How many like approach shots or like you know off angle, middle third, or kind of junk? portions of no man's land shots to Djokovic just missing this match in the net or long or wide it just felt like his footwork was all over the place and those are the balls you never see him miss his footwork was bad um his <laughs> I wish I just wish listeners you could see the look on Gil's face when he said that there was an eye roll like yeah we've hit this part you're right no, it no, wasn't, no. <laughs> I was I, no the eyes were going up because that's where my brain is I was, yeah. I, was I was thinking Rusky um <laughs> Another thing, though, was – and you described the net rushes earlier as forced. Mm-hmm. Um, they they definitely were. 
uh, because he didn't have the confidence to really – I don't think he felt like his, his timing was good enough that he could – and, you know, the pace of his shots were not high enough um, where he could finish from the baseline. So he was really just forcing his way up to net. And the thing is against Medvedev, if you're trying to finish him, it's got to be great. Like he's so fast. So mm-hmm. if it's going to be um, – if it's if it's a medium-level attacking shot, it's not going to be good enough. It needs to be the best of the best, and then you can hit through his defense. And Novak certainly just – he didn't have that. Mm-hmm. No, it, it was – again, Medvedev beat him. Every facet of the game – worthy Grand Slam champion, and now, you know, it it enters a fascinating point. So, I'll give you, and I'm sure this is something you guys talked about at three, but I do want to wrap with some rapid-fire questions for you, just some final takeaways from this event. You look, of course, at, uh, for uh, Novak Djokovic now, uh, what's so freaking crazy, there are a bunch of different records for him that are rock solid. A, the fact that he's the only guy who's won over 80% of his matches at all four slams, that's a joke. B, Hmm. You know, the fact that he's made 31 slam finals, it's a joke. And just all the, you, you can go on and on and on and on about the jokish thing. You know, the fact that he's won, here's my favorite. He's won 27 consecutive matches at Grand Slams four different times in his career. He oh has been, God. like, he has won four in a row once and then been one away from winning three in, uh, four in a row three other times. Like, what are we doing here? Like, come on. <laughs> I, I know debates are debates. That's exceptional. And I think it's something like he's – 20 of the last 40, he's won or something. Like, something ridiculous. Some stupid numbers like that or 19 or whatever. And so, you know, again, you look for Novak Djokovic, 30, 40 years old, entering the 2022 season. He's coming off of a year where he won three Grand Slams, where he was tested all of the Slams, but ultimately, yeah, three of the four was able to get over that hump now – the seal has been broken. Medvedev's raced through. The person who – we joked about this. If you're a Labitard listener, Stu Gotts would award Alex Virev a quarter of a slam because he certainly deserves some credit for draining those legs of Djokovic in that semifinal. Heading into 2022, give me your numbers. 2020 is where we're at. After the 2022 season, will Novak Djokovic have the definitive lead in Grand Slams? I think he will. Okay. My, my my prognosis is is this: as long as the slam race is anybody's game, which at the moment it's sort of anybody's game. Federer looks like he will be at twenty when he ends, but um, I'm not at all worried about Novak as long as that's the case. Um, I think people might not be prepared for the drop-off that we could see if Novak actually does distance himself um, because then you're going to have – like I, I disagree with anyone who thinks that Novak is going to run up the score um, in, in this. I, I don't think he can I, – I just don't see it, and, and maybe he can do it. But um, if he does that, he's going to have to find a fire that it's going to be – it's not going to be easy for him to find. I'm not saying it's impossible. Uh, but he'll need to stay maintain that this level, and I just think that's really hard. Uh, but right now, as he's chasing history, as motivation is totally not an issue, and the fire is clearly burning and burning very bright. Uh, look, Medvedev's a threat in Australia. Don't get me wrong, but Novak is still the favorite. You know, the the fact is we didn't we didn't really see Djokovic close to his best here um, playing Daniil Medvedev. 
And I still think from a technical perspective, if both players are at their best, there are a lot of reasons why I, I do like Novak in that matchup. I just think there are some things that, that he does. And when he's returning the serve um, and when his baseline aggression is up to par with what he can normally do, I still favor Djokovic. So um, Wimbledon, um, Australia, Novak should be favored at both. Uh, meanwhile, I think we'll see about Nadal's health because right now that's a question. And it's not like we haven't said that before in in his career, but right now this is where we're at. We need to see if he's healthy. And then once he's healthy, I think for many, for a cup for a year or so now, there have been many players on Nadal's level on hard courts. It just, it hasn't been Novak and Rafa than everyone else. That's just not how it, that's not the reality of it. It's been, it's been Novak, then it's been Rafa and Medvedev and Zverev and uh, borderline Tsitsipas. You got to put him in there because he took him out in Australia this year. Um, and then on on clay, I mean, it's the rise of Stefano Tsitsipas, um, Dominic team, if he can get back there and Novak just got a win uh, against him on clay. So my the my answer to your original question is uh if i'm a big three optimist mm -hmm. man you know i don't think this is going to happen you know i think the most likely <laughs> scenario no you know what i'm going to give i'm going to give nadal another french open mm -hmm. um and i will say that it is 22 21 20 um if you were to if i were to predict it now no it's fair i've been shooting around this question as well to both tennis and non-tennis people like the favorite answer i've gotten is one of my buddies starts out and goes i think roger federer is going to win three more games in his career like maybe and it's like it'll be like if we see him play in three more matches and it's like that's not oh or you're that take is closer to being accurate than not accurate um and so i agree like i think federer's 20 is the number for him and Guess what? That's a damn good number. Um, I said for me the rule is always Rafa's got to lose two years in a row at the French Open before he stops being my favorite there. He's lost one year, but I need to see it twice. Like, you know, Djokovic, go watch the match. Djokovic summoned an otherworldly performance to get through that semifinal in four. I don't think Rafa played poorly. I think Djokovic played excellent. Uh, the spicy take is that Djokovic never wins another U.S. Open. That's the spicy take because the fitness levels of a guy like a Medvedev, like a Zverev, like the Tsitsipas, Berrettini, Rublev, two of two of the six next gen or sinners, Felix, at least two of them are going to be healthy come New York, are going to be perfectly healthy, and probably at least one of them is going to be peaking towards that event. And you just don't know nine months into the season, what's the health of a 35 year old Novak Djokovic going to look like a 36 year old Rafael Nadal and that number only gets larger with every passing year that said you're right there's two places in particular fresh Novak in Australia is always the most dangerous Novak and he is still the favorite because we saw him play at that peak level if we would have gotten French Open semi-final Novak Djokovic would have been a completely different match in that U.S. Open final we didn't get that level but we saw that level in 2020 no reason to think he can't do that again with some uh 2021 excuse me no reason to think he can't hit that level again with some rest at the start of 2022 Wimbledon it's a sample size thing 
I just don't know what the others look like on grass courts yet. Berrettini looked good, but is that ceiling for Berrettini big enough to beat the Djokovic? I don't think so. He, he doesn't. We've we've seen that matchup three Too times. Too many times, exactly. It's been the same match all three times. Okay, but what if Berrettini – could Berrettini have replicated Medvedev's surfing performance in the final? If, if he got to play that version of Djokovic. Yeah, yeah, he, he could have, but Djokovic would have won those crucial rallies at the beginning of the second set. That's probably true. So that's a fair right. point. Yeah, good pushback. But again, why you think – well, which gets me to my point, which is why he's probably still the favorite at Wimbledon too. Yeah. But I don't think you can say it about the French, and I don't think you can say it about New York anymore because I just think the fitness level of a Medvedev or the you, you know the youth of so many of these guys coming up the rankings – that's the spicy take. Now, again, 22 sounds like a good number for Novak. I do like that number. He wins Australia, wins Wimbledon next year. We get someone at the French Open, someone different in New York as well. I see that narrative. I think that's a good one. Yeah, that, that that's my – that's the one I like. Now, I, I also – I wouldn't be surprised if – The Novak if, revenge tour. He's furious about losing <laughs> one grand slam match, so he rips off a golden slam. I don't know about that. I, I do think I could see this all being dragged out to 2023, though, right? Like, uh, if the big three, mm. if if Nadal and Djokovic, I should say, combine to win three majors next year, it's an incredible effort. Like, we shouldn't assume that that, you know, well, is, is going to happen. For the record, I didn't say Rafa wins the French No, I, I know you favorite. didn't. You'd say yeah, he's your favorite. I, I think those yep. are the two open ones. I think I agree. Paris and New York are the ones where I don't enter with a prohibitive favorite at all entering the 2022 season. I think Djokovic at Wimbledon is the biggest favorite at any slam. Agreed. Um, other than that, I think they're open, really. Sure. But, I, but uh, I mean, look, the Australia thing, Australia Novak, it's undeniably exactly incredible. that's like, what i'm saying that's why you have to put it on the list of like he is still the favorite entering australia you're right it's not prohibitive but he is the favorite because it's novak in australia right yeah um all right with that in mind other rapid fire takeaways through the u.s open put a final bow on it that work for you Unless you have sure. any final thoughts on this. Any final Medvedev? No, no. Let's, let's go yeah. ahead. All right. I was going to say, I think we hit every angle, and I promised you less than an hour. I've got six minutes to go, so I'm just going to fire things at you fast. I have five locks for the 2020s to win Grand Slams. Two, uh, you know, Team was one of them, so I suppose six locks. Team was one. He's accomplished it. Medvedev was one. He's accomplished it. The others on that list, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Sinner, FAA. I know you probably don't have FAA on your list like I do. I suppose I can ask you, do you have him on the list now? But part B to that equation, is it time for us to put Alcaraz on that list? Is he a lock to win a slam? This, I mean, is anyone a lock? Injuries, whatever. Would you put him on the I list if more likely to than not to? Uh, totally. Uh, I think he belongs on the list more than some of the other guys on, <laughs> on the list. <laughs> right, where would you put him on that hypothetical list? I mean, Zverev and Tsitsipas are, are are more like we've seen kind of close to finished products with them, and, and we see that that product is going to win a slam. So uh, Alcaraz isn't there yet. But then after that, I feel like the rest are possibilities. After that, I'll take Alcaraz. Over Sinman. Yes, I, I prefer Whoa! Alcaraz. See? So you got to see them both in person, I imagine, quite a bit in New York. And they're both very much eye test, ear test, holy crap, what's that sound? Get, make the case. I mean, you don't need numbers. I can get the superficial yeah. case, but make the case. No, no, no. I don't 
I, I don't need numbers. You know okay. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, movement. This sport, movement. Um, Alcaraz is on the the big three level of uh, of footwork, and um, that to me just means a whole lot uh, mentally. I think he reminds me a lot of Nadal. Tactically, no. Um, tactically, he's got a very aggressive game. His ground stroke speeds are incredibly high. Uh, he just needs to be consistent. And I, I don't mean consistent as in like on a week-to-week level. I mean like on a shot-to-shot. <laughs> on a shot-to-shot basis, he needs to be consistent. I don't um, mean it on a week-to-week level. That was good. <laughs> That's meanwhile. Well, in- no, because because it's a it's a confusing term because we say, oh, yeah. someone needs to be consistent. And it's like, do you mean they need to, like, make less unforced errors? Or do you mean, like, they need to not be checked out every three weeks? Yeah, you know? exactly. No, 100%. And for the record, Alcaraz right now, and you have to adjust for level of competition, but he currently ranks fourth in break percentage amongst top 50 players, and he now is in the top 50, 33.6% over the last 52 weeks. Now you adjust for ATP level, that number still stays over 29%, deal. Like, it, that yeah. skill translates Crazy. right away. Now you look the flip side, hold percentage, he's un- holding under 80% of the time. That's a bottom 10 number. He's currently, like, 41st on the list. I agree with you. It's But at the same time, when you're 18 – if the return portion of the game is already there and the serves lagging a little bit behind, totally fine. Because I love the serve that. Is all, exactly. That's that's analytics dreams. It's just like okay, because everyone's serve gets better. A hundred percent. And again, this is uh, this is also big three reminiscent. Like he's yeah. he's kind of in the mold. Um, and I, I I hate that. I hate you know. I don't want to. I don't like it when when he needs to get compared to one of them. Because uh, I don't think that's necessary at all, and I don't yeah. really think he fits into one box. But if you're gonna take them all as a mold, as a prototype, where I think Federer is an outlier there, but I mean Murray, Nadal, and Djokovic, they're they're a similar kind of player. Um, <laughs> and now, now we can we can talk about the differences for yeah. days. Don't get me wrong, but um, all of them are elite returners for a couple of different reasons. And Alcaraz really really has that. They, I mean Nadal and Djokovic, their serves were a mess when they got onto tour. Mm-hmm. No, I totally fair points to say. I would also say Sinner, though, progress he's made on serve. We talked about it in D.C. Yeah. Like I, The thing first, Alcaraz has the Tsitsipas sort of movement, right? You know the way we talked about Tsitsipas, people don't talk about it enough, how he's developed as a power mover? That's the sort of powerful first step, great anticipation. I mean, he's more fluid in the outer thirds on clay than he is on hard courts right now, but it's not an issue for him on hard courts. Like, I agree with you. The footwork is so precise. He finds forehands anywhere. That's a shared Tsitsipas. That's a shared Federer quality, just that ability. And Rafa, to be honest, that ability to find forehands at any portion of the court. The backhand continues to get better. He's comfortable moving forward. And I'm just going to be honest. He's a good serving volleyer. Like, this is a guy. And this is so stupid. And again, I hate that I'm trying to compare anecdotes from my own game to their games, but I can only speak to what I know. And 
look, I was good enough at tennis that there was a point where first round matches of local tournaments, I could dust kids. And do you know what you do when you dust kids? You work on your serve and volley tactics where you're just hitting kick serves and you're like, you're not going to be able to do anything with this kick serve. I'm hitting my first forehand cross court. I'm winning this point. You can just tell Carlos Alcaraz has done that to so many people who have been worse than him throughout his junior career that like that first volley of like, oh, you didn't realize I was serving and volleying. Okay, you lose because I've done this play a million times successfully. He has that in a way some of the other young guys don't. It's a very yeah. nuanced thing, but I, I no, think no. it's true. No, but well, he's he's a good volleyer. That's the <laughs> thing also, and his drop shot is good. There's a lot of things going on where it's like, well, he's good at that. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's, he just – every time it's like, oh, he can slice too. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's – So he's on the he, list. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's on the list. He, he's more well-rounded than Sinner. Um, now, Sinner, Sinner's power is going to take him so far. Uh, but but I think Alcaraz does uh, is going to do more things at, at the elite level. I want to see that matchup and just Felix in the mix as well. Rublev, you put those four on a court, you're changing balls every two games because Jesus, <laughs> I mean, they're hitting the ball big. Speaking of another man on that list, is Felix on that list for you now? Or are you still? I know you are slightly behind. I, I don't want to say you are more reserved no. on your Felix take than I am. Yeah, yeah, I was, and I I loved his U.S. Open. I yeah. I was really encouraged because mentally he was the best version of himself. I mean, there's just no no two ways about it. That Tiafo match, he could have lost it. All the pressure was on him, and he held his nerve beautifully. So, um, I mean, I I don't I still don't. I I would lean yeah. I would lean if you if you're asking it. Does he win a slam? I would lean yeah. I'm still I still don't think it's a lock. Um but this was huge progress. I was really happy to see it cuz mentally, I mean just I've never seen him so comfortable and confident under pressure. Mm-hmm. Where are we on Shapovalov and Demon Hour? The 99s. They're the guys that just seem to be in flux. And obviously for Demon, health issues, caught COVID, no measuring how long it's going to take to find your rhythm to that. Clearly, though, he did not have his rhythm down the home court stretch, uh, summer hard court stretch. For Chapo, coming off of the semifinal at Wimbledon, it felt like the draw had started to open up for him uh, uh, here in New York and just, you know, again, plays a poor match and isn't able to, you know, was up early breaks on Lloyd Harris but not able to get over the finish line in any of those sets. Where are we with the 19? I mean— we're not going to do Kasmenovich, don't worry, who I believe is also a 99. <laughs> but, I mean, where are you with those guys? Because those are two guys who you would say you used to think, oh, maybe they're going to be with the Zirev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, whatever group. And now they're kind of like in that Kasparudish zone where you're just like, what do I do with you? And just, you know, again, that Hatchinov zone where it's just like we know the goods can be good, but how good, you know, where's that floor? What are we going to see week in, week out? I think Shapo's a little better than that. I just think he is someone who do, who is inconsistent yeah. on a week-to-week basis. Yes. And uh, it, it, it's tough what's happened to him since Wimbledon, but I also think that we should start to kind of get used to this with Shapo because his game is so bold and so high risk. Sometimes it's going to look like he's a top five player in the world, and sometimes it's going to look like he's not in the top 50. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think that's how it's going to be with him. But – there's there's so much to to love when when he's on uh he's so overwhelming with his offense demonor is going to have bigger challenges in front of him because uh he's someone who's incredibly surface dependent i'm not sure he can overcome it 
because of the underpowered nature. Uh, he needs to redirect. He needs to use the pace to generate his own pace. Uh, the low bounce is is key for him. Um, you know, I really think that he needs to win on on grass, and that's going to be his best chance. Um, but but Shapovalov, I'm not really ringing the alarm bells with him at all. Like I I expected going into 2021 that he was going to make some great runs at some tournaments, which he has, and then he was going to lose first round a lot, which he has. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that's fair. And you know, again, my final take for you: you look right now at the ATP rankings coming out of this. Djokovic one, Medvedev two, Tsitsipas three, Zverev four, Rublev five, Nadal six, Berrettini seven, Dominic team eight. Those are your top eight, folks. We wondered, how's it all going to sift out? Who's the next gen? Where's the big three? Who's challenging them? Whatever it may be. The rankings look right in those top eight. Those are the eight guys. And then you get to the, well, Federer looks great in one week, and he's currently number nine. Probably a little high for him. But then you get to that, you know, Kasparud, which on clay makes sense. FAA, when he's confident, Shapovalov, they're 11 and 12. Hercot, Sinner, 13, 14. Then you get to that Schwartzman, Crano Busta, 15, 16 range. Uh, RBA's at 18. I think it's great that those guys are all paired together. Then you start to get to the, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Opelkas and the Isners, Hatchinovs, Norries of the world. Rankings look good, Gil. Like, rankings look good. And I think what's so fascinating, just fun fact, so this is where I'm ending. You look at the next, uh, the race of the year on finals, excuse me. Djokovic, Medvedev, Tsitsipas have all clinched their spots. Zverev is 85 points away. He's getting in. Trust me. He is currently fourth. I guarantee you he will get into the field. Rublev's five. He's more than likely he's up by like 1,500 points on the guys in 8th, ninth range. He's going to get in too. Berrettini, same deal. So we'll say those six are locks. Rafa's currently 7th, but he's not playing. So in the race for 7 and 8, you have Kasper Ruud, who's in 7th. He's 170 points up on Hubi Hercots, who's about 200 points up on FAA. And then you've got Sinner, Karatsev, Shapo, PCB. Who are the most fun options for seven and eight for the year-end finals, and then who do you ultimately think gets those last two spots? What is our year-end championships? Because the idea of Sinner and FAA sliding into spots six, uh, seven, and eight, and going those two guys plus you know key three, small two, and Djokovic—that's the usurpers, the next gen, the Djokovic. That's the event I'm looking for, Gil. <laughs> Uh, yeah, first of all, great take on the rankings. They are correct. They <laughs> yeah. are very correct right now. Uh, and I that's agree. not always the case, right? It's like they are. No, you're right. right. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a funny take, but it's totally true. <laughs> yeah. Um, my what I'm rooting for is probably the same as my prediction. Well, maybe not. Okay, I think I would like to see the Canadians get it. I would like Ooh. to see Chapeau and FAA in there. That you know, to me, would be the most uh, intriguing. I don't really think – now, look, Yannick, to, to play in Turin, that would be a lot of fun. I don't really think he's ready to make any noise at that event. Mm-hmm. Um, if he does get in, I feel like it would be one of those – remember like Berrettini 2019? Just wasn't ready to play. Yeah, but how final. great would it be for him? It would be great, and it would be it would be a good experience. It would be a confidence booster. I just don't think he'd be ready to, to win round-robin matches. Um Whereas I think Chapo and FAA indoor hardcourt, they That's could. what I'm saying. That Felix indoor yeah. hardcourt, sign me up for that right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Indian Wells is going to be huge. Um, that surface really suits Shapovalov. Um, that slow hardcourt, that's really probably his best surface. Um, 
FAA, I, I also think is in a good position. So uh, that's kind of what I'm ho- hoping for. And it's also kind of my prediction. I don't think Karatsev is playing well enough. Um, obviously, Rude is at a disadvantage with with no more clay on the schedule. Um, Hubie? And, Little Hubie love? And, and Hubie... Can we I just say, see. of all I of the guys, Hubie. he's the one who would make the semifinals. Like, of FAA, <laughs> of Chapo, of Sinner. Hubie's he's good the against guy. the big guys. Yeah, and indoor hardcourt, 6'6". Six, yeah. six, it's just like, good night. Yeah, 6'6". Six, six, go to net a lot. Which I'm so glad he's figured out this year, because... Yeah. That that was probably my best take ever. Was in in twenty in twenty eighteen? No, in twenty nineteen. I'm like, can this guy go to net? His volleys are sick. Like, what's what's he doing back there? And then this year he was like, oh, you're right, Gil. Um, just kidding. <laughs> For me, that moment, I think it was. I want to say. 2007 or 2005 for Marin Cilic Australian Open. He's playing, I want to say it was 07 or 05, and I think he made fourth round of the event. Let me see. I have it up. Uh, No, 08. Okay, 08. He made the fourth round of the Australian Open, and I'm watching it with my brother, and I'm like, Eric, I'm telling you. And this is 12 pre-bar mitzvah me. So, you know, I'm not even a man yet. And I'm, and I'm like, I'm telling you, he's 6'6", and he moves this well. This guy's winning 100 slams. And it <laughs> ended up being one. But I just was like, you could just tell right away with Chilich. You're just like, you're not supposed to be able to do that. And that was the mid-2000s. It's like, now you are supposed to. I remember that. People were infatuated with Chilich, like tennis people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I totally remember that. No, the uh, nerds have always loved him because he was the original – break the math like wait you you hold like this but you break like this and you're at this height who like here's the list of players who have done that before and it's blank and it's just like oh okay and then delpo comes along is i was thinking about it is oh is it faa no i'm just like there's a lot i think faa delpo comp is the one i like i keep resting on like a really young delpo i'm not talking injured delpo i'm talking like 0809 range the firepower off of both sides the kind of flatness of the backhand the power athletes like i do i kind of see it i don't <laughs> uh. <laughs> fair 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 i just it's the way that when they both lean into their forehands it's just like oh you lose like the way felix i know it was one set and i know he didn't have a hip abductor or whatever but i thought the way felix was hitting his backhand against alcaraz that was the best i'd ever seen him hit the backhand where he was hitting it through the court cross court yeah his backhands look looked really good all tournament long and there were points of the, in the season where the backhand was an issue for him this year mm-hmm. um his first serve, though, is the underrated part of his game. I think people just – people don't Say talk it. about it. Yeah. People don't talk about it. There it is. That's a perfect place. Um, the first serve of FAA is up there. Yeah. Like he 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 needs to be put in the in the big serve. Like is it because he's 6'3"? People don't want to talk. He's not 6'3", though. He's 6'4"? Like I was going to say border – I'm not 5, but he's a solid 4. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. Um, maybe it it's matters. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but but people were not returning his first serve at the Open. I mean, he was winning over eighty percent of first serve points. He was hitting over twenty aces, and this is against a good returner like RBA mm-hmm. and Tiafo. Uh, the serve, and and this is why on clay he is diminished. Yeah. The serve doesn't work as well. So, mm-hmm. and yet he's made a final. 
in on an ATP in an ATP event on clay, like multiple finals, and I do think the weight of that forehand, like I've seen the way Francisco. Did, are you a big Francisco Cirandolo watcher? No. Okay, so then never mind. I'm gonna scrap that comp. Um, but like, <laughs> okay. The point is, I just think his game that first forehand strength. Like, why does Christian Green forehands work on? forehand work on clay in a way FAA's doesn't? I guess that would be my question. Is FAA's forehand that much flatter than Green's that, like, it doesn't rip through the court the same way? I disagree. No, no, I don't think it's that much flatter. Yeah, I so think I think, like... It's the off speed. FAA it's has... fluidity in the outer thirds. Yes, I think, you know, Green with the speed and the movement on the clay, but also just the, the margin that yeah, sure. Green hits with is a lot more than FAA going for, like, the line every time it's fair it's fair take all right well with that in mind any other final thoughts are we missing anything do we want to do 10 seconds on brooksby like i mean brooksby korda nakashima where we stand after 2021 how many people are coming out of the u.s open being like i'm team brooksby over team korda because that is the hot take i still the amount of okay never mind i almost called out someone there's someone in my life who texts me after every Brooksby result saying, <laughs> you're still taking court over Brooksby? And I'm like, listen, unnamed person, I have to stick with the take. Like, yeah, I, like, I think they're both could be excellent. But surface versatility, I've seen court on the others. I just haven't seen Brooksby yet. Give me six months. But, you know, where are you right now? I guess American men's tennis. It was, you know, it started out so well, fizzled a little at the end. Um, but it did just feel like it feels like we're in a good place post oh, US yeah. Open. Yeah, totally. Um, tough. I mean, Nakashima loses to Molchan, who was red hot. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, unbelievable for performance against Isner uh, by Nakashima, whose return of serve is insane. Um, Korda just – this is the thing about where I stand on those three. I was very excited, like, okay, U.S. Open, here we go. It's the Nakashima-Korda-Brooksby <laughs> Bowl. Like, who's going to win this thing? And Korda was just like, oh, I have food poisoning. I can't do this thing. So, uh, you know, I'm like, I don't, I'm not in the mood really to, to, because it was almost a wash because mm-hmm. one, one competitor, you know, quarter was out, but look, they're, they're all really good. I'm feeling very good about them. They are different Brooksby. It's, it's tough to say what his ceiling is. People have asked me that and I've been like, oh boy, I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, it's not every day you get a good cop out. So I always appreciate that from you, my friend. But no, <laughs> <laughs> um, no I, yeah, it's fair. I guess the, the uh, you, the, I got the take I was looking for, which is that they are all good. It's like they're all freaking good right now. Stop yelling at me for asking, like, but who's better? Uh, that's really, honestly, he knows who he is. Um, but no, uh, Again, with that in mind, uh, obviously, I mentioned it at the top, MMA, you recap the final uh, three. You guys talk about what this means for Djokovic, where the race is at moving forward. But what else can people expect from you over the next few weeks? I feel like I always say it, now's the time when you got to get creative. Now's the time when you figure out, you know, separate the uh, the adults from the children in this game. So I should be like, oh, like, I'm doing an Instagram live on like the best ice cream in Los Angeles. Is that what you mean? Like, <laughs> I'm so confused. What, what's the Twitter thing called? I'm doing a spaces. Uh, I'm doing spaces every day. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. no, no, I'm on, it's I'm on to- uh, yeah, Spotify green room. Is my, <laughs> next, uh, my next thing. <laughs> you can find me every day on chat roulette. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah. It's, it's more just like, look, 
this is where the you got to get creative for some topics. That fourth third or fourth Thursday, yeah, that fourth Thursday in October. It's a tough schedule. It's a tough schedule. Dude, I, but, I, I'm just covering the final, man. I don't yeah. care. I don't I, care if it's. I don't care what's going on. This yeah. is the final. Is usually a good match. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how small the tournament is. I agree. Amen. I agree. So, uh, with that said, so Monday match analysis, we can expect the works. Yeah, expect the works. Monday match analysis, and uh, I mean, with three, like we'll probably break down like, you know, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic's shoes or something <laughs> like that. So, or. I'm not inviting myself on the show again, but I'm inviting myself on the show again. Have you guys done the Where Murray Fits in the Equation episode? First ever episode. No, no, no. I'm saying like the post hoc. Like the, what about now? What about like, I'm saying no, now. No, we haven't revisited. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Can we get an update? Can we get an update on what this second run of Murray does? Like, I'm curious. What do you guys think? Because, okay. again, he's still around. And what do you make of him just be like, what is the significance of that? I'm curious what you, I feel like that's in the three realm. No, no, it is. I, I think that's relevant because the kind of how he's going about this stage of his career. I mean, yeah. that might be preceding what you know. This one is what of, I'm saying. This is exactly it. Is would I don't want to say would fans want to see it, but that's literally the question: is would fans? How would fans accept this version of Andy Murray if instead of Murray it was Djokovic or Nadal? Or honestly, what we're seeing now in Federer is that what people want from their endings of their careers? I'm curious. It's a good question. It's a good question. Hey, that's what I do. Edit and chief. Um, But no, with that in mind, (laughs) obviously. Tennis channel this week, we're going to hear you on the feed. Yes, single host. um, If you're you're up early on the East Coast or up way too late on the West Coast, um, I'll be doing uh, Portoros and uh, Luxembourg. And then next week as well with like Mets and Ostrava and Nur Sultan. How's the 405 look? at 1 a.m. in the morning is it good easy to drive i i don't have to jump on it but but yeah it's great i mean there's it's the only time it's uh it's it's looking good but it's looking good that's awesome well as always my friend it is a pleasure to have you on the show monday match analysis three a tennis show at gill underscore gross you got it there it is my friend gill always a pleasure (laughs) be safe my friend thanks grosky be safe Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Monday Match Analysis and three, a tennis show host, friend of the show, Gil Gross. As always, be sure to follow all of the content he is doing. It sincerely always enjoy all of his work, and I know you listeners will as well. Of course, we recap the women's event with Tennis Channel's David Kane. If you missed that episode, just scroll down on your mini break podcast feed. All of that content available on the website, crackrackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at crackrackets. If you want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out as always to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for my fantastic guests, Gil Gross, super producers Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.